Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com And welcome back to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry. And I'm Mary Beth. In each episode, our special guest brings with them a movie that traumatized them as a child. This week, our guest is Andrew Trauke, the director of films like The Reef, Blackwater, and the new standalone, The Reef Stalked, which will be in theaters and streaming on Shudder July 29th. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Really excited to chat with you. Um, I'm a huge fan of shark movies. I'm a huge fan of creature features. Your career has been a lot of that. So I'm curious yeah. what how you got interested in, in like sharks and alligators and the jaguars and all of the things that you've filmed. Yeah, well, I do live in Australia and we do seem to have our fair share of um, deadly animals. You know, I'm pretty sure everyone in America thinks if you come here, you're going to either get knocked over by a kangaroo or eaten by a shark. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was a kind of natural extension of um, of living here. But also, yeah, well, we had crocodiles. So I, t- I tell you how the, the genesis of, you know, how my first film got made was that I was trying to make a low-budget th- thriller horror. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I was watching Open Water uh, because that's to me, was a great film that was done for very little. And um, my, my kids from their uncle had been given a blow-up crocodile I, I don't know why, but go figure. But uh, anyway, and there it was sitting in, the, sitting in the living room. And as I was watching it, I saw it and I went, oh, my goodness, you know, Australia's got lots of crocodiles. There's another top-level predator. And so I started researching and found this great story, uh, well, sad story, but interesting story about what a, a real story about these people being chased up a tree and had to get out of the water because there was a crocodile down below. And that's how that kicked off. So I guess that was my first start. And, um, yeah, I've, I've made a few since then. You know, it's it's funny because you talk about how a lot of Americans are afraid of coming and they're going to be eaten like by a shark or whatever. But here's the two <laughs> things. 
I want to go to Australia to be in a, in a tank and go see great white sharks. That's one thing I want to do. But the thing yeah. that stops me is that you have these giant ass spiders on the land that I'm so afraid <laughs> are going to like kill me. Yeah. Yeah. There's one that's not nice, which is called the funnel funnel web. Yeah. <laughs> that's, you know, they've got an anti venom now, so you'll be right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. So I can, I can go to jump in the very, the very safe cage yeah. and, and I'll be safe from, from the spiders. Yeah, okay. Yeah. It'll be all right. I think you'll be fine. <laughs> um, so I wanted to, can you tell listeners a little bit about the Reef Stocked and what it's about? Yeah, sure. So look, um, it's a film that, you know, it's a shark thriller survival story, but it's also, I'm really big on elevated thrillers, you know, ones that sort of trying to get your mind going as well as your um, fear instinct. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so this film, I tried to do both those things. I tried to give it the joint engine to keep it, as a really interesting, exciting, suspenseful ride, but also to get people thinking about, uh, you know, grief, um, loss and domestic violence. And um, the reason I could do that with this film is that, um, you know, I'm a surfer and, and surfers call uh, the shark. I don't know if they do in America, but I think they might. Um, the man in the gray suit. So I love that, that mm-hmm. line in the yeah, movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? There's a, they call him Noah or all these names for sharks. But that one's the one that really stuck out for me. And so, therefore, I felt I could make this film, you know, start with, you know, domestic violence and then go onto the water and and the shark could become the allegory for that. So that's sort of how it all sort of started for me. Um, Yeah, and that was interesting to me because I'm not really drawn to sort of the more, you know, shark exploitation films, shark films. Like, I mean, they're they're fine. They've got their place, but that's not for me. I'm more about suspense and horror. And, um, and yeah, so that was the sort of the the gateway that led me into writing this. Well, I I do think that a lot of the the shark films that are most memorable to me kind of use the shark as almost like a metaphor. I mean, you, you, you mentioned like open waters and there's the, the, one of the subtexts is their relationship and, and, and how it's kind of deteriorating throughout the movie. And in the shallows, it's also kind of grounded in the grief of the character's mom. I mean, Jaws even is, you could look at it as like a fear of, you know, the, the kind of Cape Town Island where it's like, if one bad season happens, everyone could lose it. And that shark becomes that oh. kind of capitalism eating machine. Mm. And so I loved how in this one, you, you it's grounded in that domestic violence aspect of it and yeah. follows through Thank with you. that. That was one thing yeah. that really drew me to this one. Great. Um, I'm also curious about the use because i know i know in the reef you use real sharks did you use real sharks in this one as well yeah yeah we did we uh, you know uh, another part of my shtick is i want to keep it as real as possible you know there's always this stephen king quote in the back of my mind which is once you see the zipper down the monster's back uh the game's over and yeah. so yeah i really really believe keeping it real is helpful um and you know for me that was using real sharks yeah how do you go about what? filming that <laughs> <laughs> would love to hear more about how that was accomplished <laughs> yeah i'm sure you would um i i, I, I do have to keep some secrets up my sleeve otherwise <laughs> what I, I what i love because that question comes up a lot and yeah. that makes me think well that's good they're thinking about it but um i don't want to give the answer away to that one okay <laughs> fair enough fair enough yeah. uh but i you know the the water photography is is really stunning of, of the sharks i just i mm. I love I love the cinematography in this movie. Thank you. Um, yeah. It, oh, go, go ahead. No, please go ahead. No, I was just going to launch into the fact that it was um, all shot on location, not in a tank. So, you know, we were at the oh. mercy of the weather. Um, you know, it, it did rain. It did. 
we did have gale force winds come through. Oh wow! Community for the for the clouds was sometimes an issue, and we really did have a real life shark on set one day, which was um, luckily we were on the beach, and luckily it was only a small reef shark. But you know, this fin just dribbled by or passed by, and uh, everyone went, "My God, there's a shark!" (laughs) Wow! Art imitates life, et cetera, et cetera. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um. I really quick. I loved your. Uh, I love that you used found footage in one of your films, uh, The Jungle. And I'm curious yeah. about like what drew you to using the found footage technique in one of your movies. As a huge fan of that, I was excited to see it. <laughs> oh, good, good. I'm glad you like them. I, I really wanted the challenge. Oh, look, I, to be honest, also you know they're easier to finance. So uh, typically, mm-hmm. a film to finance in Australia takes years to raise the finance. And I just guess I got impatient and just thought I can probably finance this through, you know, my own means, um, you know, and so I, that was one reason, but yeah, I was really drawn, I really, you know, I've seen paranormal activity and, you know, when they're done right, they're just very compelling and and like this whole thing of reality, I, I just love that aspect of it. So the fact that they're this pseudo documentary really interests me and then just the challenge of doing them because, you know, when you're doing something like that, because it's meant to be real, you can't use score and, and thrillers, rely on on score so much you can't you know the editing is meant to be continuous so you that really so there's all these things you can't really use can't you know you can't use high production values which is what distributors and sales agents hang their um what they sell a film from so yeah it was it was was the idea of the reality the fact that i could probably do one quickly and just a new challenge in directing that and the story course that sort of drew me to it yeah that's cool yeah yeah i'm glad i'm glad you asked a question about the jungle it gets forgotten amongst it it does and um i (laughs) I rewatched it recently and i it i it's it's really effective i love there's the one shot i think towards the middle of the movie where the creature kind of thing is revealed and there's the glowing eyes and everything. I just, I, I love that. I love that movie. Right. Me too. I also, I'm curious. um, I have to ask about the last movie that you directed though, the uh, Blackwater Abyss. Cause uh, Mm -hmm. that one kind of reminded me of like the descent in with, with alligators and it just, what was that like filming (laughs) that movie and kind of like darkness (laughs) and in uh, claustrophobic areas? Yeah. Yeah. No, that was, in water too <laughs> it's difficult um but yeah you don't make it uh, easy for yourself <laughs> no I don't know. I if it says it's on dry land i'll be halfway to sun <laughs> um, <laughs> um you know that was that was interesting and and i really wanted apart from the water um the, i'm glad you say about the claustrophobia but also because of the lighting like um, i find some films that pretend or want to be in dark places they over light it so we really went, we use LEDs, you know, this new technology and lighting, which was really helpful. And I think the DP did a fantastic job of getting the lighting right because, you know, I, like constantly the producers and everybody were going, oh, don't make it too dark. They won't be able to see, which is true. You don't want it so dark that you're straining your eyes a bit like that episode of uh, Game of Thrones was a bit difficult. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but at the same time, you are in a dark place with only available light as your light source. So, yeah, we went to a lot of trouble to get that lighting in that nice sweet spot where it felt real, um, but it wasn't It wasn't so dark that people couldn't see stuff. But, yeah, that was pretty tricky. I mean, that one was done in a, in a tank in a studio, so at least we didn't have to worry about whether it was raining and sunny and all right. those sorts of things. 
to deal with actual caves. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, so one of the things that kind of ties that movie to what I really liked about Restocked is the use of um, not knowing what's underneath you and not being able to see that because a lot of the tension in the reef stocked and well, I mean, in all of your movies, honestly, but I I noticed it as I was watching this, I was getting like so anxious because you can't see what's underneath the water. Right. And that was the thing that like really worked well as well in, in abyss because it's, it's so dark in there and you, anything could happen at any moment. And I think that when used effectively, it's such a, such a good technique. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Look, I I certainly agree with you that, and once again, to go to Stephen King, you know, the, he, he he has this quote that I pull out, which is, you know, the monster at the top of the stairs behind the door is more scary than the monster at the top of the stairs in front of the door because, you know, no matter what we do, the mind is going to create a much more um, scary, spooky scenario than the film maker probably is because our mind is just that much more uh, imaginative and, and, you know, worried. And, you know, the mind's always constantly trying to figure out what, what's going on, where, where, what, you know, it loves puzzles. So um, my, my thinking is exactly that, um, you know, show the, show the threat and then, you know, just hide it or wonder where it is. And the audience's mind is going to do the work for you. They're going to be, going, oh, my God, it's coming. No, no, it's not. Oh, maybe it is. You know? I mean, because that's what I do. Um, and, and I'm pretty sure... That's what most people do in the cinema. So that's the game I like to play, which is set up the suggestion and then uh, you've got to work out when is it going to happen. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I do have, I want to take it back very briefly to um, childhood. Did you watch a lot of horror movies growing up? You know, to tell the truth, not really. Um, You know, some that I did obviously stayed with me, but um, I'm sort of more drawn to um, darker thrillers, I guess, than okay. horror, you know? Yeah. Do you remember what some of the ones that kind of stood out to you when you were a kid watching them? Oh, wow. Um, well, you know, I think I mentioned before um, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre certainly did some damage. Um, uh, and there's this film, and maybe you can answer it since you guys know all this stuff. I couldn't try to put it together google it and get it worked out and this is you know being a kid what it's like isn't it you don't remember the actors mm-hmm. of the night. you just remember scenes and bits and fragments but there's this film and i can't remember the name where there's the two kids and they're just mucking around on the phone ringing up people saying i know i know who you are i saw what you did and one of them drops i think it's some jelly or from a sandwich on the number and they ring back and the guy's actually just killed his wife or something and so he gets really paranoid and decides to come and kill them I really can't remember. It's probably some big oh. grade. I, I really don't know much more than that, but I know that that really sort of freaked the hell out of me. <laughs> yeah, that would be that'd be terrifying. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm trying I'm drawing a blank on it though. But yeah, I, I, I am I, also. It's funny how kids' memories, like you know, you get as you said, pick bits and pieces, and there are movies where I never thought I had seen them, and then I watch them as an adult, and I'm like, oh my god, I remember this as a kid. Yeah. You just never remember yeah. the name. Or I don't know if you've ever had this where you watch. You know, when you're a kid, you watch something and you're sure she was sure that's what happened. Then you rewatch the film and go, "Oh, that's not what happened. That's not what happened at all." (laughs) This this podcast, especially where you revisit things I haven't seen in a long time, I'm like, "Oh, uh, that's not how I remember that movie Uh whatsoever." Yeah. Wait, is it? Is it? I saw what you did. It could be. It's not the one about the babysitter who comes back. You know, is in the house. Uh, That's a famous. No, it's about two two girls who make random. Prank phone calls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's is that what it's called? I saw what you did. Joan Crawford. Joan Crawford. Wow. By William Castle. From nineteen sixty-five. I felt felt more like it was a seventies film, but maybe. 
I'm going to okay. look that up. I, whisper, I saw what you did and I know who you are to a psychopath who just murdered his wife. That's the story. Oh, there you go. There you go. There you go. You Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> your, your Google skills are much better than mine. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds really interesting, though. That really yeah, it, was, well, it was when I was a kid. Scared the shit out of me. It's not a book, <laughs> apparently. Huh. I'm adding this to my my list of <laughs> things to watch when I'm when I'm bored. Yeah. Well, I guess speaking of movies that scared the shit out of you, uh, yeah. Andrew, what movie have you brought with you today for us to discuss that's guarded your life? Yeah, I've brought Deliverance today, and um... <laughs> oh boy! All right, well, here's yeah. a quick summary for those of you unfamiliar with Deliverance. Um, intent on seeing the Kahulawasi River before it's dammed and turned into a lake. Outdoor fanatic Lewis Medlock, played by Burt Reynolds, takes his friends on a canoeing trip they'll never forget <laughs> into the dangerous American backcountry. Yeah. Okay. So, Andrew, take us back. When did you first see this? How old were you? How did you see this? Who let you see this? <laughs> give, us yeah. your, give us your horror story. We want to hear it all. Yeah. I mean, I think I was about 13 or 14. Wow. Um, it would have been that sort of age, I guess. Um, well, maybe 12, but I think around there. Um, and it was at my friend's, you know, their house. And, you know, VHS hadn't been out for too long. But we, you know, I, and, yeah, it was in the living room. And uh, we went in and um, I didn't, no one else was there. And we sort of put it on and um, and scared the shit ourselves for a while. <laughs> what What do you remember about watching it? What was what were the things that, like, jumped out at you? Uh, well, there's obviously the most famous scene, which is Squeal Like a Pig. And, and yeah. that, that really sort of, that scene is... It probably defines the entire film, actually. Like, seeing it again recently, I kind of felt that that, that scene is just massive, you know. It, 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 it's what the, if that scene hadn't been in that film, I'm pretty sure it wouldn't have been that film. You know, that film wouldn't have been as successful as it was because it's, it, for the time, it was, it was very confronting and, and it's very brutal and, and um, raw. And, uh, yeah, that was that scene. But then also, I guess, you know, the whole setup with the dueling banjos and all those uh, hillbilly sort of looks, they're, they're so real and you just feel, oh, where are you going? You know, it automatically sets up this dread and threat that you go, oh, my God, don't go, don't go. <laughs> what are you letting yourself in for? And it's just purely through characterization, which is brilliant. Yeah. It's it's weird thinking about this movie uh, because I, I when I was a kid I never I didn't see this until much later I think probably mm-hmm. in my twenties is when I finally saw this movie yeah. for the first time but it's a movie that I think has kind of defined how we think about sort of like the rural hillbilly music and quotations mm-hmm. redneck you know that kind of horror film I think yeah. this movie sort of cemented those of what yeah. of what you expect for them and. All people have to say is go, and you think of you think of redneck horror, you think of hillbilly horror, and it's I I think even for I I was talking to uh, at my at my day job my um, one of my coworkers she's an intern she's twenty three years old she's never seen this movie and I was like and she's like oh I know that that means you know hillbilly horror and I was like see you've never heard of this movie before and yet that that just saying that just evokes images it does it does it's like if you do the jaws theme everyone knows <laughs> sharks you know so but but that dealing but it's such a brilliant scene too because you know they do that whole thing and then the kid won't say won't acknowledge him or do anything and you just go whoa you're damaged you know it, it's 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 a great scene because it's got so much joy and automatically it flips to shit this is scary <laughs> yeah 
I I also really like it because it sort of sets up that expectation because they, they go in and the things they say about um you know the the rural folk that live there are pretty disparaging you know uh mm. Bobby the the more overweight character is talking about I had it written down talk about genetic def- deficiencies ain't that pitiful yeah. and you know Lewis uh, starts off the thing by talking about the people up here who've never seen a town before and everyone's like let's not upset these people so it definitely sets us as like others them and kind oh, of demeans yeah, totally. them and then all of a sudden this kid whips out the banjo and is like out playing the suburbanites yeah but that's yeah, also no, to me like very much like oh he's performing for them and they're like oh we'll give him some money it's almost like he proved oh you are you are a person to mm-hmm. us like you actually deserve to be acknowledged as a person and then once the music yeah. stops and he goes completely quiet it's like he loses that again yeah he loses yeah. that humanity yeah yeah there, there's a connection isn't there and then there isn't yeah yeah uh, apparently they had to and you can kind of see it in the shot of the film apparently they had to have another of the characters stand behind him because the kid really liked the band the the guitar player and so in order to get him to turn away from it they had to put the other guy so that he would get like this this reaction from not wanting to to talk to him right right Uh, wow it's interesting isn't it yeah yeah, the things people do for you know to get that perfect (laughs) shot they're all lies they're all lies (laughs) (laughs) well and like so i had actually just watched this movie for this podcast i had never seen it before because i did not want to ever watch this movie because of how it was described to me by people which is saying something because if people listening to this podcast know me i love really like fucked up extreme horror movies but i was watching it today and trying to figure out like what was it about this movie that made me so like i don't want to watch this like it feels so dangerous and i think it's because I had never heard, like, I'm very into rape revenge movies with, with women as the care, as the victims of sexual assault. And so mm-hmm. when I, before I was into that kind of research, my stepdad told me about deliverance when I was younger. He told me the whole plot of it because he loved to do that. And I was like, absolutely not. I want nothing to do with that. And that was my first, I think, like explicit discussion about sexual assault with a person was about deliverance, mm-hmm. which wow. like, wow. So then I associated the two together in like a really dark way. And mm-hmm. And the more I started watching like great revenge movies with women at the center, I was like, why am I so weird about deliverance still? And I, I don't know. If, and it's, I think what I came to today was thinking that like, it's so interesting how this movie is treated versus movies like I spit on your grave, which are yeah. obviously like very different in terms of exploitation, but you have like there, I was, as I was, I've seen I spit on your grave a couple of times and they're very similarly structured in terms of like, I mm-hmm. think anyway, like going out into the woods and then getting harassed by the locals and then getting kind of revenge trying to escape and it's just interesting to see how a movie where the men are at the center of it is so and again very different quality movies and made with very different purposes but still it's just so interesting to see how those two types of movies that have a similar core are thought of so differently like in the realm of cinema because i know people deliverance is like people talk about it as a classic film it was nominated for academies that's what it was like it is a it's a it's a gorgeously shot movie and like I think it deserves it. But again, it's just interesting to think about like yeah. how those two topics are handled between like gender di- with gender dynamics. Yeah, but also shot a long time ago, so you know a sense of gender and uh, that has changed a lot. I think over those thirty or forty years. So um, oh, but- for sure. And I know that like in this movie especially, it was so shocking because it, I mean there it's a man raping another man and like that. Mm-hmm. 
even today, like, is incredibly taboo to discuss, like, in the early 70s, especially with characters like John Voight and um, Burt Reynolds in these movies. I mean, like, fascinatingly ahead of its time, maybe, and it's, like, discussion of toxic masculinity and masculinity. It's, I'm glad I watched it, basically, is what I'm trying to say here. I'm glad, I think I have, I wrongfully avoided it, and I think I'm very glad that I have now experienced it and see it as something more than just a shocking movie, but very complicated. It is. It's got a lot going on, hasn't it? Because it's got, like you say, the different masculinities or level of masculinity, obviously, Burt Reynolds being the alpha male right down to the guy, I've forgotten his name, who who gets who gets raped, you know. Bobby. And, and, yeah, Bobby. And um and that's interesting. Then it's got the whole eco um theme through it, you know, a flooded lake and we're losing touch with nature. And isn't it sad that this whole culture is going to be destroyed by, you know, the lake being flooded. And then as you said, the whole others, you know, the townspeople versus the urbanites. So yeah, I feel there's a lot going on in that film. Yeah, I I I for because I, I think this might be the second time I've seen this movie and the opening um, almost monologue from Lewis where he's talking about oh, how, you know, yes. how they're drowning the river, which I think is such an interesting turn of phrase because, mm. uh, you you know, yeah. we normally think drowning in people yeah. and their people yeah. are drowning the river. And he yeah. says just about the last unfucked river in the South. And then he says, basically that progress is going to rape this whole damn landscape. And so you huh. have that as being like the opening line and, of course, then it it progresses down that that path of of the sexual assault metaphor. But um, I I always think about how it's interesting that this stages these sort of like four suburbanites that are trying to you know reclaim their sense of masculinity. I guess in in terms of the seventies mm. being sort of like this really kind of interesting microcosm of like what is a man. And I, mm. I, I did find this really interesting article uh, that was written um, by Isabel Machado from, she's a Brazilian, um, I think she was a doctor, I think she has a doctorate, and she was writing for um, the Southern Studies um, at Ole Miss EDU. She has like a, an obsession with um, the South and Amer- American South, and she was talking about how there was an obsession of coming out of the 50s with like that men had become too soft and that uh, men had like lost they consumerism had like made made men more of a couch potato than going out and doing all these mm-hmm. things and i what's interesting is i started doing some digging because she talks about men's magazines and there were like uh, over 130 different uh, adventure magazines aimed at men wow. that came out in the 1950s and there's the like uh, list of magazines that were about trying to exude sort of like this kind of toxic identity of like what what manly men are they always had like covers of like men with rippling muscles going after like this defenseless girl she's like on the cover they're you know conquering Mm. jungles or anything like that and they had names like men's adventure magazine real men men man's illustrated not men man's illustrated men only man's life daring true like all these 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 magazines that came out that were like trying to I guess, in a way, reclaim what they thought was masculinity. And it sort of feeds into this idea of, you know, I'm going to go conquer this nature and we're going to go yeah. show that we're not this couch potato type of man. Yeah, right. Interesting. But it's, um, I don't know, it's it's interesting that the way that this film was sort of framed, because like a, I, a lot of the advertising about the film prior to it and after it were, were like 
shots of Burt Reynolds, you know, looking all buff and, and men talking about how, like, you know, they tried to one up each other. There's like this classic shot in Life magazine of John Voight climbing the, the cliff using yeah. no, no stunt doubles for any of this yeah. stuff because they couldn't afford there it. You go. He's a real man. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, I, I don't know. It's interesting to me that the timing of this, this movie coming out in, in like the 70s, both is sort of like trying to recapture what some people think a man is and then also yeah. like inverting that and subverting that expectation a bit yeah i think so for sure i think um like we've been talking about it, it portrays four different roles of masculinity and um and and you i think you know wanting to get much away the alpha male doesn't really come out the best out of this um so yeah because he he gets like he gets his femur broken he gets taken put out of commission and it's i I hadn't even thought about that there's like different archetypes there because ed has the 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 pipe and you always think about the studious man with the pipe and then you have the artistic guy with his guitar and you have the insurance salesman with bobby who's a little bit more flabby around the middle and then yeah and then there's the alpha male yeah it's interesting i hadn't even thought about it yeah i agree when they even go up to him and they're like, what do we do? And when they, when the whole canoe stuff happens, like, what did, what do we do? You're the fucking man with the answers. What do we do? What do we do? Yeah. And like, they don't, and he is completely like sobbing and can't even be touched without screaming and is, cannot do anything completely incapacitated. So yeah. it is really fascinating. Again, in a movie, like again, movie from the early seventies, having yeah. these weird inversions of gender dynamics and also seeing men, but also there's a couple posters that are like very like tender. Like the men are like panting and like wet and they look very <laughs> upset. And it's just very like fascinating tension in this movie that is, huh. And like, again, I don't, it's like a very interesting look at male friendship that is a, that is a little bit first predicated on macho-ness, but also kind of yeah. goes into the weird when everything is stripped away, what happens, which again, like we don't see a lot of male friendships portrayed with that kind of complexity in cinema a lot of the time. So, you know, yeah, especially I mean, for the time period, it's very interesting. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's, and, you know, obviously once he's out of the picture, then who's going to step up or what, what are they going to do? You know, um, that, that poses a really interesting question too. And of course the moral dilemma of whether or not to, come clean and state things properly or whether to, uh, you know, just get make sure they can get out of the place. That's also very interesting too. Yeah. yeah, that, yeah. There, there's a lot going on in, in, in this film. I, I that, that whole discussion about what, what should we do? How do we, how do we solve this issue um, is much more interesting than I, than I first gave it credit for, because it's, it kind of it's it's talking about their fears of of the other in a way because you know mm-hmm. they're outsiders so how's it going to look with like a, a a jury of the peers of the the killed people vice you know people that might be more um open to sure you know, the, the suburbanites but then there's also that kind of i mean i think it kind of implicitly talks about the the shame of of sexual assault and inverts it as to why a lot of times sexual assault is not, um, you know, reported because there is that, yeah. that sense of like, A, nothing's going to get done. B, there's the whole shame about it because Bobby is like, no, this is never going to leave this place. You're never going to talk about this again. Right. Like that he's, mm-hmm. he's very, he's almost more concerned about that aspect than anything else. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and, you know, 
once again, you see the pragmatism of uh, of Lewis. He he just wants a solution that's going to make him okay, whereas mm-hmm. the others are much more concerned with what doing the right thing by society. Um, well, not Bobby. He, like you say, he just wants to forget about it. But the other two just they want to do the right thing, and then there's that tug of war about what the right thing is and how to do it. And um, yeah, I, I found that pretty interesting because once again, I was thinking, what would I do? Would I side with Lewis or not? <laughs> and um, yeah, you just it's it's a great moral dilemma because I can see where he's coming from. You do feel threatened after what those people have done to them. It's not like they're just nice people <laughs> <laughs> right right yeah. well and i mean if, if if you have the chance of, of hiding the bodies in a place that's never going to be found because it's about to be dammed up or you know the dam's going to be gone away and it's going to just become a exactly. lake like i don't know yeah yeah it's it, it's also interesting to see the the set it because it's it's a very obviously a male dominated set and i guess fights broke out uh between john borman and the screenwriter christopher dickey apparently they yeah they apparently got into fistfights and there's a rumor that <laughs> Borman had four teeth knocked out. Oh my god! <laughs> Don't ever fight with a rider. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I I think like I, I from what I understand, Dicky sort of has a very imposing. Um, he's I think he's very tall and he he was kind of, the, from what I understand, he sort of is like in between. I would say like Edge on Voight's character and Lewis. Um, Burt Reynolds's character where he's like he's a poet um, and he's he's smart because he I think he was like a poet laureate for for some time wow. but he was also um, this kind of like aggressive uh, alpha male type type character and so I think he from what I understand he got drunk and came on set and then it became like wow a bunch of, of fighting between him and John that's insane isn't it wouldn't happen today I tell you I'm it's amazed that the writer, the writer near the set, that's uh, very unusual. <laughs> I, I, I am too, because you hear about that all the time now, where it's like the writers, you know, they t- they send yeah. off their script and it's like, maybe they'll have a set yeah, visit right. once and that's about it. But yeah, no, apparently it. he was on set all the time to the point that the cast wanted him to go because he was very <laughs> churlish on set. Good yeah, Lord. I don't think it's a good idea to have the writer there. um i wanted to touch back on something you said andrew about like eco horror in this movie because i i again first time watching this didn't realize how much of like an eco horror environmental horror movie it was like i knew it was Mm. the rural hillbillies against like the city cityites but that like you talked about terry that monologue at the beginning about how everything's going to be wiped out and how it's almost like this response that it's not a good response, obviously, to hurting and killing city folk, but also like they are a threat. They do, mm-hmm. they do represent this threat to their lives, their culture, to everything. And this movie takes on such an interesting tone when you think of it as an eco horror movie or an environmental yeah. horror movie. Yeah. And how you know how much how it, what I'm trying to say, how much environmental horror doesn't have to be this like ex- excessive like mo- monsters or something terrifying but more like that this is more of a real look at the terrors of what we do to our environment and how that affects people and and not in a preachy way and not in a super horrific way but it's a really interesting balance of how this is a complex that Borman accomplishes it in deliverance and I was curious Terry have you thought I know we talked about it a little bit about like yeah no I think it's incredibly precedent this film when you think about what's happening today and you think you know and and like you say, he doesn't ram it down your throat. It's not like 
this is going to be a film about the destruction of the planet. But taking this small thing, the flooding of a river, and what that means, you know, to the loss of the that community, to the loss of all that environment, um, this is all going to be dead, as you said, it's going to be drowned. That to me is like when I saw that again, I kind of thought, well, isn't that where we are now? Isn't isn't mm-hmm. that the problem now? I mean, aren't we climate change and all those things? Aren't, aren't we? But on a bigger scale, we've just taken it to the next level. So incredibly precedent when you reflect on it, really, that this film had that as one of its themes. Um, and I think it really also lends itself to that whole, and it's been a theme for a long time, I guess, of man versus nature to a certain mm-hmm. degree. It's, it's not yeah. like in your face, but that whole thing of do we tame it or do we try and live with it, um, which is, you know, I think a central part of our entire existence. You know, we've obviously been trying to tame it for a long time and hopefully now we're going to try and exist with it a little bit more. Um, yeah, and when you think that the 70s were a time of mass exploitation of the planet, like, it, it, you know, it was yeah. prior to any sort of green movement or just the beginning of it, um, that would have been, I guess, in the writer's mind. But, I, yeah, I found it incredibly prescient that it was, it was talking about these things which today is so, uh, well, for me at least, front of mind, that, you know, we're destroying our planet. Yeah, and I, th- I think it's interesting, uh, that article that I found by Isabel, it's a, we're going to include in the show notes, listeners, because it's a, it's a fascinating it's really read. Cool. Uh, but one of the things she talks about is the way um, in which, uh, Georgia, where this is set, was taking a lot of federal subsidies to um, further industrial development and agricultural subsidies, often to the detriment of the the rural areas and the people that were were doing the, the jobs and doing the work to the point where they were opposing welfare programs while focusing on these things that were making the rich rich and the poorer poorer. And that's kind of, I think, in this movie as well, in terms of, I think it's interesting, the movie opens up kind of with the bulldozers, like tearing away at the land. And there was this quote that Christopher Dickey, the, the writer and the screenwriter notes that deliverance plays with the tension between the new South and the old South, where the new South was Atlanta, the old South was up in the mountains and was a whole different world. You didn't have to drive mm-hmm. far to hit it, but it's this kind of play on like this sort of kind of going into that kind of man versus nature and trying to get back to this idea or this idyllic sense of what the past used to be while you also are having to deal with this, this progress that's coming in with the bulldozer to, to destroy the world basically in a way. Mm. It's interesting. I, I mean, I don't know about you, but certainly here, just the urban sprawl in this country, it's, you got to drive further and further to get into a bit of nature. Yep. It, it's true. It's, it's, oh, it, yeah. it's everywhere. I, I look here. There's like, yeah, it's, definitely becoming more more urbanized before you know we start wrapping up can we just briefly talk about the assault scene because i think again because a lot of my interests are like in how these kinds of moments of violence are framed and filmed and how we are supposed to watch them Mm. and i was very interested about how this one would be filmed like would it be kind of are we just going to watch it from afar close-ups whatever and so you know we have more of the closest on the faces of is it Bobby the yeah, rapist um, and then um Ed. what's John Boyd's Ed and there's yeah. this interesting like triangle of people yeah. that we flash back and forth and it's all about who is watching who and I think that yeah. to me really got to me in my head and it got to me in terms of how that was framed as we're obviously very intimately viewing this violence but they're not showing us like the act itself which I think you know when 
movies involving rape do that, it's always such an interesting choice. And I love to think through that and kind of, you know, this is already such a violation for so many reasons. And focusing on these faces makes it much more, I think, personal and much more harrowing rather than just like this centerpiece of violence that we're all just going to move on from, but rather like really show that these the emotional weight that these kinds of things have it's not just to shock you but it's to really hammer home how much of a violation this is both to Bobby and Ted and it's just really and and, and it does make the the hillbilly character even more grotesque with his teeth and his screaming and it's just so grotesque and upsetting Mm. and I knew it would be but I didn't think just how it's shot is so much more visceral than I had anticipated yeah yeah when I watched it again I was interested how long they held the wide shots and just to me it gave it a real sense of once again this notion of reality of like we're not gonna you know obviously there was cutting I'm not saying there wasn't but um rather than we're not going to go in there and find these fascinating shots or make it all about the spectacle it was just almost like an observation at times which Mm -hmm. To me, is much more harrowing because it feels more real. Um, yeah, so yeah, yeah. And, and you know, they did. Um, they were um, careful not to show too much of the rape, I guess. In the, but but you get so much of the the horror of it from the prelude and just the whole squeal like a pig, and it's just so horrible, isn't it? Just the the toying with him, you know. Um, um, but yeah, I, the, the way it was shot for me was that because they kept it wide, and as you say, cut between the three characters mainly. Um, it felt it just felt real it, it, it wasn't it wasn't playing for um cinema magic or cinema style or it wasn't trying to be sensational in that way it was just letting it play out in a way yeah and i i think one of the reasons why i stayed away from the film for so long was um because i'm gay and there's that i for the longest time this was the only movie that i had heard about that had like male male sex i'm not going to call it gay sex because this is not this is this is all about dehumanization and all about and they they, that's one thing i did appreciate when i finally did watch it is this like it's all about this power and this this kind of dehumanizing these people because he wants them to squit to scream squeal like a pig right and so there's that aspect of it that is just like this isn't um men having sex with men this is like domination and we are going to basically do to you what you are doing to our land is how right. it comes across right yeah. mm-hmm. and but i honestly think that was for me one of the things that sort of like lingered in the back of my head this the entire time when i was growing up it's like ooh, this is i don't know if i want to see that and see this sort of like sequence played out in that way um but of course watching it when i watched it i'm, I'm kind of glad i did watch it as an adult and didn't that didn't inform my like idea of, <laughs> of, of sex but it's 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 weird that i don't know I don't know the, the that whole scene. It, it's still it it's very effectively shot, I think, and because it focuses, as you said, Mary Beth, on the faces and the the audio aspect of it, the the mm. piggy sounds and all that kind of kind of stuff. Mm. It's mm. also interesting that that John Borman directed this and Exorcist Two, which is mm. a weird movie, and Zardoz. Because as I was watching this movie, I started to think about how Burt Reynolds is. Uh, uh, what is that? Is this what this gosh, di- the wetsuit, wetsuit. With the weird diver wetsuit? Yeah, that's yeah. Strange wetsuit with a zip. Yeah, it looks like Zard, like the outfit, almost like it, it belongs in Zardoz. And I was like, I was thinking, is this like a prop for Zardoz? Because it just, I don't know, it it just stuck out of me because it does not look like a regular wetsuit. 
No, it's so not a regular wetsuit. I'm not sure because they're, they're, they're all sweating. Like they've all got these beads of sweat and he's wearing this wetsuit. You're going, what the hell is he wearing? I, maybe, I guess, well, Zardoz came out afterwards. So maybe it became like an inspiration for, because it, it just, it feels, it gives me like Zardoz, like, like vibes the entire time. Like this is, it's hard to take it seriously because it, it feels a little camp in a movie that is so not camp. Yeah. Yeah. It's odd, isn't it? Well, do we want to wrap this up and give it our rating out of five? Sure. Yeah. What briefly? One of the things that I found fascinating doing research on this, though, I'll be very quick, is um, this movie ironically increased tourism in in Georgia. Yeah. Yeah. I heard that. They went from having like in 1972, I guess, about seven, almost between seven and eight thousand people floated down the Chattooga River, and it tripled the following year when this movie came out and then reached almost 68,000 in 1989. So like tourism, what? Like went up rafting (laughs) and canoeing went up as like a main form of tourism dollars for Georgia. And this movie said, (laughs) 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 but it also said in motion, um, Georgia is a, as a place for films to be made, like film production in Georgia ramped up after this. Yeah, because wasn't there a big pushback by the Georgian, um, whatever you call them, governor, because they thought it'd be bad for the state. And it was absolutely the opposite. It was absolutely opposite, which is wild to me, considering what happens (laughs) in this movie. It makes me not want to ever go to Georgia. Okay, now do we want to wrap up and get rid of five? Sorry, Terry. Um, all right, Terry, um, how many Zardos wetsuits out of five do you <laughs> give deliverance? Uh, you know, I, this this movie surprises me every time I watched it. I mean, I guess I've only seen it twice, but uh, I was surprised at how lean it is for a movie that's almost two hours. Like, it's, I think it's about yeah. an hour and 45 minutes, but it doesn't feel that way. It has a brisk energy maybe because they're whitewater rafting through most of it and so that that pacing continues throughout but um i i think this movie has a lot more to say about um gender and masculinity than i than i kind of anticipated it to uh mm-hmm. and i think it's it's filmed beautifully i think it's um, wild that they did all of these stunts pretty much with no stuntmen uh because mm-hmm. they couldn't afford it was the big thing um so i mean Gosh, I think I'm gonna give it. I'm gonna cut one of those those uh, wetsuits in half and give it four and a half wetsuits out of five. What about you, Mary Beth? I I agree because I said four and a half because I know I was so hesitant going into this movie. I knew you know we all know like the two main parts, and I was like I'm very interested to see how this is all gonna play out. And you know it's really it was so surprising and refreshing to see a movie like this that is there to shock, but also is digging into something much more complex and not ramming it down your throat, but really making these characters that at first you're like, oh, I don't know about all this. And then you kind of see them come out of their shells and as more fucked up stuff happens and you kind of see who they truly are. And, you know, you're subverting this Burt Reynolds masculinity that everyone is used to. And he is like rendered useless for the last half of the movie. And I just... It's so much smarter than I ever gave her credit for. And so I apologize to Deliverance personally that I ever, (laughs) Don Borman. So yeah, I'm going to have to give it four and a half Zardos wetsuits. And then Andrew, you have the final word. How many Zardos wetsuits out of five do you give? Well, I'm going to banjos. Um, Oh, there you go. <laughs> um, I think one banjo, the conversion rate is. <laughs> um, uh, 
Um, look, I, I'm with you guys. I was going to give it four, but you guys said four and a half, so I'm going to follow the pack. Um, there we go. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a film that certainly, especially talking to you guys, it strikes that um, you've stirred up all these other thoughts I hadn't really examined as much. Um, but, yeah, it, it, I think, you know, it's got a lot of interesting suspense and action. It, it really packs a punch with that scene which you know i think was revolutionary for its time and and resonated for a long time and and it's yeah it really does make you think about a lot of things um so and and of course it's in a nature setting which i love but yeah so i i really can respond to this film i did wonder because i mean you you filmed uh you know on location would would you ever want to do something like this, like as they did? Yeah, in the... oh, I think a river would be amazing. You know, you I'm go. probably sure I shouldn't say that, but um... <laughs> the next movie's coming up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much, Andrew, for joining us to talk about Deliverance. I I don't think you have social media, do you? But if if you don't, or if you do, where can people find you, and what do you have coming up that you can talk about and share? Yeah, sure. So I, I've got a. Um... A Facebook page for the reef. It's just the reef oh, okay. on Facebook. Um, you know, we put updates and stuff. And it's not just about the reef; it's about most of my films. But I've okay. called it the reef. Okay. And um, yeah, I've got a film that I'd love to make. Um, I've got a couple, but one that I'd love to make that I'm trying to get up, which is called Melodica Vampire Slayer, and it's a black comedy. And I call it uh, Spinal Tap meets Dracula. So. Um, yeah. The, oh my God. So, I know every time I say that, I get that reaction. So I know that sounds amazing. Good. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know if you can use real vampires in that though. I mean, you might have to. <laughs> Gosh, I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> I'll, have to, I'll have to write in a scene with a banjo now, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I think so. Um, so listeners, you've heard from us. We want to hear from you. What was your experience with Deliverance? You can send us an email at scarredforlifepodcast at gmail.com or you can reach out to us directly on Twitter. I am at MD McAndrews. And I'm at Gailey Dreadful. And of course, don't forget to follow the podcast on Twitter at Scarred Podcast. And please don't forget to review, rate, and subscribe. Thank you to Eric Power for our artwork. Thank you to Sean Keller for our music. Thank you everyone for listening. Please stay safe out there. But most importantly, stay creepy. And until next time. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you small-town dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1, 
drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in the briefing room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.